I'd never heard of this. Maybe you'd never heard of this either. Um, there was an accidental, accidental car theft. <laughs> it happened in Portland, Oregon. What had happened in, is in late October of 2016, Erin Hatsey reported to the police that her red Subaru Impreza had been stolen out of her driveway. According to her, uh, her surveillance footage, a woman had calmly entered her car and drove away. And calmly indeed, because the woman sat there in the car for a few minutes, uh, getting things adjusted and getting ready to head off with Aaron's car. She said, we were confused uh, because it didn't seem like the normal actions of a car thief. Well, the next day, Police stopped the woman attempting to return the car outside of Hatsi's home. The driver offered, offered up this ex explanation. The night before, she had been sent, by, sent to the neighborhood to pick up her friend's car and accidentally took Hatsi's vehicle instead. And the friend didn't see it until the next morning and realized the mix-up and left a note and gas money inside the car and sent it back to its rightful owner. The police finally figured out what happened. Apparently, older Subaru keys are interchangeable on some models and occasionally can be used to start a different car. And that's exactly what happened here. She had went to pick up a car, she didn't know what it looked like, and the key started it, so she thought she had the right one. Now, this is a kind of a bizarre, happy ever after kind of story. But as I was reading it, it, it reminded me that sometimes, and it's hard, but sometimes we need to be very wary of jumping to conclusions. It's so easy for us to jump to conclusions about a situation. It's so easy for us to, to miss the big picture sometimes. And I want you to understand that God has a big picture in mind. In fact, God has a picture that can get a car back returned after it has been accidentally stolen in the first place. I think we can all agree that jumping to conclusions is something that we are prone to. For instance, you walk into a room and you see a few people in the corner whispering, and what do you automatically think? Well, well, they're talking about me, or this must be bad, or why didn't they just come to me instead of talking about me over there in the corner? Or you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see the blue lights in your rear view mirror, and what do you automatically think? Well, was I speeding? Did I roll through a stop sign? Did I forget to fasten my seatbelt? Or you get a call from your child's school and automatically, before you even pick up the, 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 well, flip over the phone, open up the phone, you don't pick up a thing anymore, it's in your pocket. But anyway, <laughs> you think, what have they done? What have they done now? The worst one, you get a call in the wee hours of the night and what do you think? Someone's hurt, someone's dead. I mean, you jump to conclusions. In fact, jumping to conclusions has a way of leading us down the wrong road. It often convinces us of wrong things. And it has a way of confusing and blurring the actual truth of a situation. 
This morning I want to look at someone who jumped at conclusions, and it's found in Mark chapter 9. We are finally to Mark 9. We're moving. We went over the hump. Mark 9. We're heading down the, toward the end of Mark at this point. And in Mark 9, we're going to find someone who jumps to conclusions. Mark 9, 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the, men watched, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, and they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now here in our text, we find one of our heroes of the faith jumping to conclusions. We find Peter, one of our heroes, jumping to conclusions. Peter, James, and John had been invited by Jesus to this marvelous scene where God's glory comes down on the mountain. In fact, in the Old Testament, they would have described it as Shekinah glory. That's what we're talking about here. God's Shekinah glory coming down on the mountain. They, 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 it's engulfed them in this, this cloud up there on this mountain. And while they're there, they, they've seen their, their heroes of the faith, and they, and they hear God speak audibly. They've watched Jesus' appearance be transformed into a dazzling, radiant, glowing, glorious appearance. And surely it brought them back to the uh, Mount Sinai where Moses was up there in the presence of God. And when he came back down the mountain, he was glowing in the people's presence. Surely they, they thought back to that scene. And as they're watching, they realize the lawgiver Moses who, in fact, was personally buried by God, and the prophet Elijah, who was personally taken by God up to his presence without ever dying, both of them are standing there. Their heroes of the faith are there. And they, these two heroes of the faith are speaking to their rabbi, to their teacher, to their mentor, to their master. And this experience is one that goes beyond any experience they could have possibly dreamed up. And, and, it, and it gets even more awesome because as they're standing there, the glory of God envelops them and they hear God's voice. And he says, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. So what does Peter do in the midst of this glorious scene? What does Peter do? He, he jumps to a conclusion. Hey, let's build some shelters as memorials for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It's interesting to me that the statement right after he mentions this concludes that this expression 
was an expression out of fear and ignorance. He didn't know what to say, and he was terrified, so he blurts this out. Hey, let's build some memorials up here. But if you read between the lines, there's some possibilities for why Peter thought, hey, maybe, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe we should build these, these memorials up here. And one of those things is maybe Peter's thinking to himself, well, this is a great place to be. I want to stay up here on the mountaintop. I want to stay here where I'm enveloped by the glory of God. I want to stay here with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. This is awesome. And who wouldn't want to experience that supernatural uh, event continuously in their lives where Jesus and their heroes of the faith are there? Who wouldn't want to be there? Or maybe Peter thought to himself, let's, let's, let's build these, these shelters because he was defaulting back to the past. Because I want you to understand this word shelters is the Greek word for tabernacle. And that, that's the same thing that, that happened when Moses came off the mountain after experiencing the Lord's glory. Moses came off the mountain and, and they built a tabernacle and so they could uh, approach God through the priesthood and at the tabernacle. So maybe, maybe Peter's got in his mind, that way we can, we can approach God just like they did in the wilderness. Let's build some tabernacles up here. We can, we can approach God just like they, they used to do. Or maybe he's up there and he's experiencing this awesome, awesome event. And he thinks to himself, you know what? Maybe we need to just do something. And the only thing that came to his mind is let's build something. Let's just, let's build something. I can't just experience this. I can't just bring it into my life. I can't just absorb the glory of God and what he's proclaiming here. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And so he thinks to himself, well, let me build something. Let me, let me build something. The truth is, you could probably preach a sermon on any of these points. The truth is, I probably have preached a sermon on most of these, and I've heard sermons on all of these. But, but is that really the point of this experience? Is that really what we're supposed to take away from this experience? In an article in, New York, in the New York Times magazine, writer Dana Tierney describes how both she and her husband, John, had rejected their childhood faith. They did, however, baptized their son Luke to placate their families. But that was it. That's all they really did with their childhood faith at all. So when Dana's husband went to Iraq as an embedded reporter, she was understandably fearful. But she was surprised at how little fear her four-year-old son Luke had. In fact, he was extremely calm, she thought to herself. And so she assumed that it was because he just had youthful naivety. Until one day, when they were watching a TV interview of some U.S. soldiers who were sharing their fears about returning to, to, to Iraq. And for just an instance, Dana saw Luke form his hands into a position of prayer. And when she asked him about it, Luke at first denied it. But then after he did it a second time, she, he confessed that he was in fact praying. And Dana said she was stunned, partly by Luke's faith and partly by his faith that allowed him to be calm and her lack of faith that made her so fearful. 
She was also embarrassed that her four-year-old son instinctively felt that praying was wrong and socially inappropriate in their family. And when, Dan, when Dana asked Luke when he first began to believe in God, he said, I don't know. I've always known he exists. As Dana explained, she said, my religious friends have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. I want you to understand, it's so easy for us to see things and think the, the, that what we're seeing is obvious and yet not really see at all the entire picture and not really see what God wants us to see. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at things and we're so dulled by a worldly perspective instead of bright and hope-filled from a godly perspective that we don't see God's point of view in what we're looking at. And we don't even have to be someone outside of the church to have this problem. It is a problem that even those inside the church struggle with. We sometimes cannot see what God wants us to see. And it appears just like Dana, Peter was missing the point. A point that many of us may have missed too. Peter didn't experience this mountaintop uh, experience so that he could stay there. He didn't experience it so that he could go back to the Old Testament ways. He didn't experience it so it was an opportunity for him to do some service for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. In fact, I believe that God makes it very clear why Peter, James, and John experienced this mountaintop experience. And it's found in verse 7. So let's read it once more. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. In fact, in these very few words, we are packed, punched with this powerful message from God. It is a reminder that Peter needed, and I believe it is a reminder that we need. This is the point of the entire Mount of Transfiguration. These words, in my opinion, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. God is telling Peter, James, John, and all of us, and all Christians everywhere, Jesus, my son, is divine. He is divine. Now you say, well, I know this, Todd. Well, do you really know it? Peter has been hanging out with Jesus. He has been with him day after day after day. And essentially, when it comes down to it, Peter puts Jesus on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. When it comes right down to it, Peter just sticks Jesus right up there with Moses and Elijah. Well, Moses and Elijah, Peter's right there with them on the same plane. Peter is not on the same plane with Moses and Elijah. Here's Moses and Elijah, and here's Peter. Or Jesus, sorry, not Peter. Jesus is down there below Moses and Elijah. Here's Jesus, and I can't even get up as high as I need to be for Jesus. That's Jesus. He is divine. In fact, the Hebrew writer in 1 verse 3, Hebrews 1 3 says, 
For the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of this being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That is who we serve. He is an exact representation of God. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. Do you really see that? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. How often do we talk about Jesus or, or come to worship? And we, we think in terms of of, of our Savior, but we don't think in terms of our Lord. We don't think in terms of God Almighty, the God who is before all things, who is outside of time and matter and space, who by his very breath spoke everything into existence. We don't think about it. We're not in awe of who God is and who Jesus is. We love him as Savior, but we're not in awe of him as Lord. We're not in awe of him as God himself in our presence. Which leads me to the next point. God says, listen to him. Listen to him. Which means that Jesus is not only divine, but Jesus is the authority. Again, I want you to remember who's standing in front of Peter, James, and John. Moses, the lawgiver. The one that everyone held up as the guy in the Jewish faith, Moses. And then not only Moses, but Elijah, the prophet, who represented all prophets. In fact, when they describe the Old Testament, often they describe it like this. That which is of the law and the prophets. In fact, that kind of surmises the entire Old Testament. And God says, hey, Jesus, Jesus' word is more than that. Jesus' word is final. Jesus' word is the fulfillment of all that. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear and until its purpose is achieved. He said, the law is not going to disappear until its purpose has been achieved. And then if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. I want you to understand that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. He is the one who brought that to an end. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says this about Jesus. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. All of them are fulfilled in Jesus. Again, the question arises, 
Who has got authority in your life? Who's got the authority? Because Jesus is the authority. If you came and you gave your life to Christ, then what you have essentially done is you have submitted completely to His authority. At least that's what you're supposed to have done. You know who the world says is the authority? Me. The world tells me and you that you and I are the authority. That's not a new concept. The very first sin was all about that. Satan comes to Eve and he says, hey, if you eat this fruit, you're not going to die. What does he in fact say? You're going to be like God. He's tempting them. You want authority, don't you? You want to be the ones who determine what's going on, don't you? You don't want to have to listen to that guy. You want to be the one who decides if this is right or wrong for you. But Jesus is the authority. In fact, Jesus proclaims or claims authority for himself. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, I have been given all, all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all the authority. Now, I want that to sink in for a moment because what does that mean? That means if Jesus has told you to do something, what do you do? Whatever he says. Whatever he says. If God's word tells you to do something, what do you do? Whatever it says. Well, I can't forgive that person. You better, because God's word said to do it. You're not the authority anymore. Guess who's the authority in your life? Jesus. Jesus is the authority in your life. Now, I love the last verse I read to you. Notice what Jesus does after his divinity and his authority is proclaimed by his father. It says, as they went back down the mountain. Jesus leads us to the needy. Jesus leads us to those people who need to hear about his divinity and his authority. That's what he does. In fact, if you're familiar with chapter 9, you know that he came back down the mountain. When he got there, there was an argument going on. And the first thing he was able to do was heal a demon-possessed boy. He, he immediately goes back and helps someone in need. But I love this. He, he takes them back down the mountain. Now think about that. If you're Jesus, you've been up there. You've been glowing. You've been in the presence of your father. You've been with Moses and Elijah. You've got your three best friends up there. Wouldn't you think to yourself, hey, let's hang out here for just a moment. Let's, let's take at least the day and, and stay up here. But he doesn't. He immediately heads back down the mountain. It's almost if, if, as if he is saying, we can't stay up here. We have to go down to the lost, down to the hurting, down to the needy. There's an urgency down there. We can't stay up here very long. We have got to get down there. We can't stay in here very long. Inside the safeties of these church building walls, inside the safety of everyone who believes the same thing and loves each other and are there for each other, we, we can't just stay here. We, we need to come here, but then we need to go out there. Because there's lost and there's needy and there's hurting people all around us. And that's why Jesus led them back down the mountain. And I think that's what Jesus would want to do with you is lead you right outside the doors. 
right outside the doors. He won't let Peter, James, and John, nor us, stay aloof or unapproachable. He says, go and change lives. Go and offer hope. Go and do what I've been doing. Help those in need and point them to where they can find life. In fact, the two verses after Matthew 28, verse 18, are these. It says this, you're familiar. Therefore go, Jesus says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says the very first word in the Great Commission is go. It's go. Go, go, go. Go. Who have you been going to? Who have you been sharing Jesus' divinity and authority with? Tim Keller says this, He says, I've heard people say, I'm checking out Christianity. But I also understand Christians can't do this, can't do this. And the Bible says you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love the poor or you're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage. And I can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ with a list of conditions, he says. But the real question is this. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life, and if knowing Christ will fill your life with His goodness and power and joy so that you will live with Him in endless ages with His life increasing in you every day. And if that's true, wouldn't you say things like, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up blank, sex, or whatever else. Let's say you have a friend who is dying of some terrible disease. So you take them to the doctor and the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you will be healed and you will live a long and fruitful life. But there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you cannot eat chocolate. Now what if the friend turned to you and said, forget it, no chocolate? What's the use of living? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I will also keep eating chocolate. He concludes by saying this, if Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start complete reordering of my life. Peter, James, and John are up on this mountaintop, and God wants them to understand Jesus is divine and the authority, and you cannot be his disciple. You cannot serve him. You cannot say that you love him. You cannot be a follower of his unless you are willing to completely remove all restrictions from your life. 
You have to allow Him to reorder your life completely. That means if God calls you to go somewhere out of your comfort zone, you go somewhere out of your comfort zone. If God calls you to speak to someone, you speak to that person. If God calls you to teach or whatever, you do those things. Regardless of where they are, how costly they are, how scary they are, you do them because God called you to do them through his word, through his spirit in your life. So let me ask you, is your life changed by God's word? This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Have those words transformed you? If not, they need to.